show. Oh, hey, morning, Flo. Morning, everybody. Hey, Chief. Damn. You look like hell, Chief. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, I look better than your wife when I left her this morning. <laughs> While you were drinking or sleeping or whatever it is you deem so necessary on Monday morning, Phil Larson called, said some kids are stealing the gnomes out of his garden again. Oh, those garden gnomes again. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll make it right on that. On a more pressing matter, Joyce Byers can't find her son this morning. Mmm. Okay, I'm gonna get on that. Let's Joy, Joyce is very upset. Flo, Flo, we've discussed this. Mornings are for coffee and contemplation. Chief, she's coffee your... and contemplation. Flo. Chapter two, Spielberg. If anyone was as significant to '80s culture as Stephen King, it was legendary filmmaker Stephen Spielberg. In fact, the two share a lot in common. Both are around the same age, both shot in the stratosphere in the mid-1970s with revolutionary genre tales Carrie and Jaws. And both have similar thematic preoccupations, childhood, outsiders, mystery, and wonder. I don't know how Stephen King and I aren't related by blood, Spielberg told Entertainment Weekly in a 2018 interview. I cannot believe that part of Stephen King is not Jewish, and I can't believe that we haven't actually made a movie together. I really think Stephen and I have a spiritual connection in terms of the movies and the stories we love to tell. The pair almost teamed up for Poltergeist in 1982, but scheduling conflicts prevented the collaboration from coming to fruition. Their careers, however, surged through the Reagan years in parallel streams. Like King, it is impossible to imagine the 1980s without Spielberg. For kids growing up in that decade, his movies were planted deep in our collective consciousness. They really merged a lot of different things together. They gave us a shared set of archetypes, symbols, characters, and stories. They gave us a common language. Spielberg was undoubtedly the most influential visual storyteller of a generation. Some critics felt his movies were juvenile, sentimental, and overblown. They identified him and Star Wars creator George Lucas as the primary culprits for a general dumbing down and softening of content in movies and an escalation of spectacle, excess, and blockbuster um, commendation. Spielberg's films were sometimes referred to as popcorn movies, code for cheap escapism aimed at the coarse tastes of the masses. But for most moviegoers, the consensus was different. His films were packed with wonder, magic, and adventure. How could you not be swept up into the uh, likes of Close Encounters, Jaws, E.T., and Indiana Jones? They were pure cinematic euphoria. They presented a kind of threshold between childhood and adulthood, between innocence and experience, between the known and unknown, between fear and transcendence. Once you entered Spielberg's universe, you were never the same. This was certainly the experience for the Duffer brothers. Not only did they grow up on Spielberg's movies, they became students of his craft obsessed with how the magic on the screen was created. 
They wanted that Amblin DNA, as they described it in Stranger Things. Rostoffer explains what Spielberg did in the 1980s was he took these kind of B-movie ideas like flying saucers or killer sharks and he elevated it. In this new medium, our idea was, can you go back and try to do a little of what he did? Take something that's been regulated to being cheesy and can you do an elevated version of that? Director of photography, Tim Ives, said the mantra on the set of the first season was, what would Spielberg do? E.T. It is clear that mantra was taken to heart. No single director is as integral to the world of Stranger Things as Stephen King or Steven Spielberg. And no single movie is as important to the series as E.T., the extraterrestrial. Released in the summer of 1982, E.T. was an unusual movie to become a blockbuster, let alone the highest-grossing film of all time at that point. While Spielberg directed it, it was written and produced by women, Melissa Matheson and Kathleen Kennedy, respectively, a rarity in the industry. It featured no major movie stars, and it was made on relative a small budget, $10 million. For context, the 1978 movie Superman starring Christopher Reeve cost $55 million. But the movie about a lonely boy befriending a, a, an, an unusual alien struck a chord. It became the most commercially successful movie of the decade, making over $400 million, more than Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, uh, Indiana Jones, Back to the Future, Batman, or Ghostbusters. More than a movie, it was a cultural phenomenon. It was screened for President Reagan at the White House. Pop star Michael Jackson was so obsessed with it, he agreed to narrate the audiobook. By the 1980s, it was part of just of just about every family's VHS collection, mine included. The influence of E.T. on Stranger Things can't be overstated. It surfaces over and over from specific scenes and characters to border concepts and themes. Both stories take place in small suburban towns, E.T. in an unknown suburb in California, and Stranger Things in the fictional Hawkins, Indiana. Bordered by dense, mysterious forests, both feature single moms and latchkey kids, both, as mentioned in Chapter 1, feature bikes as symbols of childhood mobility and freedom, and both explore how society and individuals respond to strange supernatural beings and events.
We see parallels to Spielberg's film immediately. The opening establishing shot of the stars, which gradually pans down to Earth, is almost identical to the beginning of E.T. So it is the first scene with the boys, Mike, Will, Lucas, and Dustin, in the Willer's basement. Just like E.T., the setting is a suburban house at night. The kids are bantering around a table and playing the same game as the characters in E.T., Dungeons and Dragons. And in both cases, the food of choice is pizza. Elliot famously goes outside to retrieve it from the delivery boy while Dustin offers a slice to Nancy, played by Natalia Dreyer, on his way out. Both these parallels, the Duffers wanted to capture the natural chemistry from the scene in E.T., the feel of the kids just being kids, not over-scripted performances for the camera. It was the first scene they wrote for the show, and they were understandably nervous about how it would translate. We held our breath, called action, and it clicked, they were called. Our boys flew through the scene effortlessly and energetically, and their chemistry was electric, they felt like they had known each other other their whole entire lives. Other than when we saw and sold the show to Netflix, this was the single best moment for Stranger Things. The homages continue throughout the first chapter of season one, the vanishing of Will Byers. Later in that episode, when Will is fleeing from the Demogorgon, he runs outside to a nearby shed. The shed is also where Elliot first discovers E.T., the, not, the dynamics of these two scenes, however, are essentially reversed. As director of photography Tim Ives explains, in E.T., Elliot goes to the woodshed when he's looking to find the monster. Will is looking to get away from the monster and hide. Some of the visuals in the scene, uh, shed scenes are also very similar. There was a shot very similar that was a homage to E.T. acknowledges Ives. It was very wide looking back at the house on the left and the shed on the right. It was the sort of uh, signature shot for, for that that I think the audience responded quite well to. There is no direct uh, connection for Elliot, the sensitive outsider in Stranger Things, though we see similar qualities in both Will and Mike. Similarly, there is no direct uh, correlation uh, to E.T., the lovable, wide-eyed extraterrestrial from a faraway planet. However, there are some pretty obvious connections between E.T. and Eleven. The moment at the end of Chapter 1, the vanishing of Will Byers, when the boys discover Eleven in the woods, for example, is very similar to Elliot's discovery of E.T. in the cornstalks. In both scenes, the kids carry flashlights and encounter elicits a mutual shock. They don't know what to make of each other. E.T.'s visual fear is replicated by Eleven, who trembles under the harsh glare of the light and rain. Like E.T., she is homeless and scared. There are also many similarities, bet similarities between the relationships of Mike and Eleven and Elliot and E.T., just as Elliot brings E.T. into his home, the boys bring Eleven back to the Willow House, while the other boys remain suspicious and resentful of Eleven's presence. Mike is caring and tender with her, a dynamic that closely resembles the relationship between Elliot and E.T. Somehow, they just connect. Like Elliot, Mike acts as a kind of protector. 
he finds Eleven uh, clothes and builds her a makeshift bedroom in the basement. At the beginning of chapter two, the weirdo on Maple Street, he brings her down Eggles Eggle waffles before leaving to school. The Duffer brothers acknowledge many not so subtle nods to E.T. in this chapter, particularly with the relationship between Mike and Eleven. Just as E.T. is about is about the connection between E.T. and Elliot, this chapter is about the connection between Eleven and Mike. Over the course of the day, they begin to bond and empathize with one another in surprising ways. Many of those ways are wordless and intuitive, since Eleven and, like E.T., barely speaks and doesn't really understand the new world she finds herself in. As the Duffer Brothers explain, she becomes an, the, the quintessential stranger in a strange land, unfamiliar with our customs and lifestyle. With Mike at school, Eleven, just like E.T., is alone in the house where she putters around and explores, eating junk food, testing out the recliner, trying to work the phone. While she doesn't get drunk like E.T., they are both mesmerized by the TV. Like E.T., Eleven also makes things levitate with her mind just as E.T. picks up a bunch of Play-Doh balls and makes them rotate like the solar system. Eleven stuns the boys by making a toy Millennium Falcon rise in the air. She subsequently demonstrates much greater powers, including the ability, similar to E.T., to communicate across dimensions. Perhaps the most widely noted connection between E.T. and Eleven comes in Chapter 1, Season 1, Chapter 4, The Body. When the boys dress her up to go to school, including having her wear a blonde wig, E.T., of course, is similarly dressed up by Gertrude, who also gives the alien a wig and dress. In another uh, Gertie E.T. scene, the young boy, the young girl, teaches the boy and the alien, with the help of the TV, the alphabet. When E.T. says, B, Gertie responds, Good which E.T. hears as Be Good. A similar moment happens in Stranger Things after the boys help dress Eleven up. Mike tells her she looks pretty, but then embarrassed, embarrassed as pretty good. Looking at herself in the mirror, Eleven repeats the same line, pretty good. While Eleven and E.T. share much in common, however, the Duffers are quick to highlight distinctions. Between the obvious fact that Elle is literally a girl, you know, a girl with supernatural abilities, and E.T. is an alien, Elle is more volatile and dangerous. Eleven isn't a normal girl, explained the Duffers, and she's no gentle planet-gathering, collecting alien either. She has unpredictable supernatural powers that will most definitely put our boys in danger. There are numerous other nods to E.T. and Stranger Things, the parents' obliviousness to the presence of Eleven, even when living in the same house, Mike, like Elliot, faking sick to stay home from school, Dustin using a trail of baloney to lure Dart, similar to Elliot luring E.T. with a trail of Reese's Pieces. In Season 2, Chapter 4, Will the Wise, as the boys discuss the possibility of Will interacting with another dimension, 
Mike declares, this isn't D&D, this is real life. The line recalls Elliot's famous quip in response to the suggestion that E.T. simply beam up to his home planet. This is reality, Greg. Then there are the reoccurring visuals of adults searching the forest with flashlights, of men in hazmat suits, of the ominous presence of federal agents, of epic bike chase scenes. We even see an E.T. toy figure in Dustin's room. More than any single film, E.T. is woven into the tapestry of Stranger Things, yet to the show's credit, it does so in a way that feels fresh and new. Eleven is like E.T., but distinct in crucial ways. Mike is like Elliot, but different. Joyce is far more fleshed out than Dee Wallace, the single mother in E.T. In fact, as much as E.T. deserves its status as an all-time classic, Stranger Things goes much broader and deeper in terms of character and plot development. Moreover, while Stranger Things certainly has its heartwarming moments, its tone is notably darker. In this way, it also resembles another Spielberg classic, Jaws. Jaws. The Duffer Brothers were so inspired by Jaws, they almost set Stranger Things in the same Long Island town of Montauk, the fictional town Amity, 
was based on Montauk, where a 4,500-pound great white shark was caught in the 1960s, though the movie was actually filmed on Martha's Vineyard. We liked Montauk, explains Matt Duffer, because we liked the coastal setting, and Montauk was the basis for Amity, and Jaws is probably our favorite movie, so I thought that would be really cool. Then it was really going to be impossible to shoot in or around Long Island in the wintertime. It was just going to be miserable and expensive. The Duffer brothers ended up shooting Stranger Things in the suburbs of Atlanta, but the Jaws influence remains pervasive. Jaws was released in the summer of 1975, yet it still remained in wide circulation in the 1980s, during, during the time which multiple sequels were released. Credited as the first summer blockbuster, Jaws was accompanied by a massive marketing and merchandise blitz, including t-shirts, books, toys, and posters. It is no surprise, then, that we see the iconic poster hanging in Will Byers' bedroom. Jaws was the highest-grossing film of all time until it was surpassed by Star Wars and later E.T., and set the blueprint for a new generation of blockbuster movies. Perhaps the first obvious connection to Jaws and Stranger Things comes in Season 1, Chapter 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers. When we were introduced to Chief Jim, Jim Hopper and the Hawkins Police Department, Chief Hopper is a character very much in the same vein of as Chief Martin Brody from Jaws. Both former big city policemen with complicated pasts now serving as police chiefs in sleepy towns. When he first arrives as at the uh, police station, Chief Hopper's secretary informs him that some kids are stealing some gnomes out of a local resident's garden, an incident that closely parallels an early scene in Jaws when Chief Brody's secretary informs him that some nine-year-olds from the school have been karateing the picket fences. Both humorous antidotes are meant to emphasize the low stakes of typical daily events in these small towns. And in both cases, another typical day in the office is suddenly disrupted with much more serious incidents. In Jaws, a call from medical examiner about a girl found dead on the beach. And in Stranger Things, a visit from Joyce Byers, who is frantic about the disappearance of her son, Will. The Duffer brothers acknowledge that the frame where Chief Hopper types missing on the police report was directly inspired by the frame in Jaws when Chief Brody types shark attack. Chief Hopper is certainly not an exact replica of Chief Brody. Hopper is more broken. We learn that his daughter Sarah passed away at a young age from cancer that has his marriage subsequently falling apart. He lives by himself and relies on a heavy combination of beer, cigarettes, and unidentified prescription pills to get through the day. By contrast, Chief Brody is still married with young children. Yet both men are driven, particularly after the incidents that dis disrupt their respective towns, by a, a fierce desire to protect their communities, especially children. Both men are gradually 
also gradually become aware of larger forces intent on covering up disturbing information. Incidentally, the breaking point for each man comes with the concrete realization that a suspected conspiracy theory theory is actually true. In Jaws, the panic surrounding the killer shark is seemingly put to rest when a great white shark is caught. Based on the size of its mouth, however, oceanographer Matt Hopper, played by Richard Dreyfus, doubts it's the same shark they're looking for. While the mayor doesn't want to hear it, Chief Brody suspects Hopper may be right. Together, Chief Brody and Matt Hopper sneak into the facility where the shark is being kept, and when they cut it open, their suspicions are confirmed. It is not the killer shark, but rather a shark that seems to have migrated up from the Gulf Stream with nothing inside its mouth but fish, beer cans, and a license plate from Louisiana. In Stranger Things, likewise, a decoy dead body is used to pacify the town, but Joyce Byers and Chief Brody suspect it may be a deception. Just as in Jaws, Chief Hopper learns the truth by breaking into a facility and cutting open a body, in this case the decoy corpse of Will. The body is filled with stuffing definitively, confirming a conspiracy to cover up the disappearance of Will. Chief Hopper validates Joyce, who felt as if she was going crazy and was perceived as such, just as Chief Brody and Matt Hopper validate each other, empowering them to continue their push for the truth. Another major connection between Stranger Things and Jaws are the terrifying creatures lurking just beneath or beyond the placid surface. One of Spielberg's most brilliant decisions in Jaws, necessitated in part by the the malfunctioning of the mechanical shark, was to not let the audience see the shark for a good chunk of the movie. Its presence instead was suggested. With the primal two-note musical theme, the ominous sight of a fin, or in brief, violent flashes. Likewise, in Stranger Things, we don't see the monster in full for much of the first season. In fact, for most of season one, we aren't even quite sure what it is. When we do see it, it is often partially obscured or in quick shots. This was intentional on part of the Duffer Brothers, who described their monster as an interdimensional being that has more in common with the shark from Jaws than Pennywise from It. When the monster enters our dimension, it's like a shark breaching the water. Very much like a shark, it, it, it drags its prey into its home, where it feeds. Each time it enters our world, it leaves a small tear or wound. Mark Sager, who's, who plays the monster in Stranger Things, acknowledged drawing inspiration from the shark in Jaws. When I came into our you know, when it came into our conscience reality, it's like I'm breaking the surface. It's like I'm jumping out and grabbing Jaws actor Robert Shaw and pulling him back into the deep. Indeed, the death of Barb, played by Shannon Persher, takes place in a very Jaws-like way. She sits on a diving board, her feet dangling into Steve's pool. The eerie calm is disrupted when a drop of blood falls from her finger into the water. The blood seems to attract the monster who suddenly snatches her, sight unseen, into the night. The scene bears a number of resemblances to the shark attacks in Jaws. 
from the attraction to blood to the proximity to water to the sudden shock associated with the strike. Blood also attracts the Demogorgon in the season finale, both at the Briar's house when Nancy and Jonathan intentionally cut their hands and at Hawkins Middle School after Eleven kills several agents. The monster, like the shark, is, as Mark Stager puts it, a perfect eating machine, even more terrifying because of how elusive and shrouded it is in mystery. Close Encounters In addition to Jaws and E.T., another significant Spielberg touchstone for Stranger Things is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977. Just as Chief Hopper reminded people of Chief Brody, many saw in Joyce Byers echoes of Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, a similarly zealous figure whose determination to find the truth looks more like a descent into madness than those around him, including his family. This connection was consciously made by the Duffer brothers. We knew Renona Winder had a very specific energy, said Matt Duffer, and we thought we would lean into that, and that led us to talking about Richard Dreyfuss's role in Close Encounters, the idea of Renona versus the world. We love that idea. In one of the most memorable, memorable scenes in Close Encounters, a monomaniacal Roy turns his plate of mashed potatoes into a model of Devil's Tower, which he can't get out of his mind. Everyone thinks he's making a mountain out of mashed potatoes, explains Matt Duffer, and I thought I want to see Renona making a mountain out of mashed potatoes. That's going to be a great scene. In Joyce's case, the mashed potatoes are the Christmas lights. In season one, chapter three, Holly Jolly, when she nails the multicolored lights up all over the house with painted letters on the wall, claiming that it is allowing her to communicate with Will. Even her sympathetic son, Jonathan, thinks she's gone off the deep end. Jonathan tears as his mother clings to Christmas lights and conspiracy theories echo the dinner table scene in Close Encounters when Roy's family is likewise brought to tears by his growing obsession. Incidentally, Joyce's Christmas lights also recall the climax of Close Encounters, the colorful blinking lights transformed into an elaborate system of paranormal communication. Yet perhaps the most striking connection between Close Encounters and Stranger Things comes in Season 2, Chapter 1, Mad Max. Nearing the beginning of the episode, Will finds his surroundings in the arcade suddenly transformed into the Upside Down. He is alone and walks outside, where he looks out at an ominous, gathering storm. This encounter is repeated near the end of the episode. Framed by the doorway, he stares out at an apocalyptic red sky. This frame is almost identical to the iconic scene in Close Encounters when little Barry Guller is drawn to the light from a keyhole and opens the door, mesmerized by the orange lights emanating from the encroaching spaceships. This visual was also used as cover art for Stranger Things Season 2. Indiana Jones A perhaps less immediately obvious Spielberg connection to Stranger Things is the Indiana Jones trilogy. Chief Hopper recalls Indiana Jones in a number of ways. The regular person by day adventure, hero by night, Montoff. The, the witticism, the proclivity to land a good punch, even the iconic hat. Some of the more explicit connections, however, come in season two. 
particularly particularly to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which not coincidentally came out in 1984, the year season two takes place. The Duffers acknowledge wanting season two to model the darker tone of Temple of Doom. I love that it gets a little darker and weirder from Raiders, said Matt. I feel like it's very different than Raiders did. Even though it was probably slammed at the time, obviously now people look back at it, back on it fondly, but it messed up a lot of kids, and I love that about that film, that it really traumatized some children. Not saying that we want to traumatize children, just that we want to get a little darker and weirder. One of those darker moments is Will's exorcism, possessed by the mind flare and racked with pain. Nancy ultimately decides to grab a hot poker out of the fire and stick it into him in an attempt to liberate him from the grip of the monster. This moment is similar to the scene in Temple of Doom when Indiana Jones is possessed until he is brought to his senses by Short Round, who likewise uses fire, in his case, a torch, to save his friend. Stranger Things also draws on some of Temple of Doom's lighter moments. When Nancy and Jonathan visit Murray Bauman and are trying to figure out the sleeping arrangement in Chapter 6, The Spy. It closely resembles the dynamic between Indy and Willie in Temple of Doom. They want to sleep together, but are resident to admit it. Even a Duffer explained, Matt Duffer explained of the scene, that's the whole bedroom dance. Leaving the bedroom, fighting, going back, coming out, coming back, that's Temple of Doom. Another another funny moment comes in Chapter 9, The Gate, as Max, played by Sadie Sink, drives the car with a block under her feet to help her reach the gas, gas pedal. That's exactly like Short Round and Temple of Doom, Rostoffer acknowledges. The Indiana Jones connection is probably most apparent in Chapter 5, Dig Dug, as Chief Hopper makes his way through the dark, intricate tunnels underground. The terrain from the cavernous pathways to the vines to the snake-like creatures all recall the creepy, claustrophobic terrain faced by Indiana Jones. In fact, at one point, Hopper is framed in silhouette with his hat and a visual that could almost be mistaken for Indiana Jones. Perhaps the best nod of all is when Chief Hopper returns to to retrieve his hat, an iconic Indiana Jones moved from the Temple of Doom, said Rostov of the scene. Antoine Satin, who directed the episode, added the hat in because it wasn't in the script, but he felt like Hopper's got to leave his hat and he's going to grab it, right? See, none of us can stop ourselves from doing these references. It's just so much fun. Jurassic Park. While Jurassic Park came out in the 1990s, 1993 to be exact, its influence on Stranger Things is too prominent to ignore. Jurassic Park was arguably Spielberg's last major popcorn movie, at least until the release of the 1980s inflicted 2018 blockbuster Ready Player One. Like his biggest movies from the 1970s and 80s, Jurassic Park was a massive success grossing over $900 million while saturating popular culture. The first scene in Stranger Things that echoes Jurassic Park comes in Season 1, Chapter 1, when Will runs inside his house, trying to escape the Demogorgon. 
As he picks up the phone to try to get help, we see and hear the monster through the front door window. Its sounds and movements eerily resemble the velociraptors from Jurassic Park, specifically the scene in which the raptors peek in the kitchen door window. Just as in that memorable scene, the Demogorgon slowly manages to open the door. The influence of Jurassic Park really begins to emerge, however, in the latter half of Season 2, as the raptor-like demodogs begin to wreak havoc on Hawkins. Compare, for example, the scene in Chapter 6, The Spy, when Steve goes out in the junkyard to confront the demodog before realizing he is being surrounded by a pack, in the famous scenes in Jurassic Park when Robert Muldon is hunting down a velociraptor only to realize that he has fallen into the hyper-intelligent dinosaur's trap. Like Steve, he is surrounded, leading to his memorable line, Clever Girl. The Jurassic Park references come fast and furious in Chapter 8, The Mind Flayer, as the Demodogs infiltrate Hawkins' lab. When Jonathan and Nancy meet up with Steve and the kids just outside the building, the shrieks they hear in the distance sound a lot like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Meanwhile, inside the facility, as in Jurassic Park, the power must be restored. But reaching the breakers proves daunting. In Jurassic Park, Dr. Settler accepts the mission as park creator John Hammond gives instructions via walkie-talkie. In Stranger Things, the task is carried out by Bob Newby as Dr. Owens delivers directions, also by walkie-talkie. As Bob makes his way through the park corridors and stairwells of the lab, the visuals feel very similar to Jurassic Park, as does the urgency of the mission and the tension of surrounding threats. Like Dr. Settler, Bob is able to successfully reach the breakers and restore power. Yet, like Dr. Settler, the return proves more difficult. Bob's retreat into a closet, into a storage closet, is a very Jurassic Park-like moment. The demagogue, the demagogue, the demodogs, the, and the dinosaurs are sensitive to sound and movement. Bob was able to stay quiet and still until the monsters have passed. As he attempts to escape, he accidentally trips over a broom. Dr. Owens shouting, run, echoes Dr. Sadler's shouting the same in Spielberg's film. Bob slamming the door just before the monster reaches him also echoes Jurassic Park. While Dr. Settler narrowly escapes the velociraptors, well, we know what happens to Bob. May he rest in peace. Poltergeist There are a number of other Spielberg connections in Stranger Things, including the 1980s film Spielberg wrote or produced rather than directed. One direct reference comes in Season 1, Chapter 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers, when, in a flashback, Joyce surprises Will with tickets to see the horror movie in Poltergeist. Released in the summer of 1982, Poltergeist was written and produced by Spielberg, a clause in his contract prevented him from directing it. It ended up being directed by Toby Hopper, best known previously for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and became one of the biggest movies of that year, grossing over $75 million. Stranger Things draws from Poltergeist in a number of ways. 
The Duffer brothers acknowledged thinking a lot about the film when drafting early scripts for the series, particularly the dynamic of an ordinary family losing a child to another dimension. Like the young girl, Carol Ann from Poltergeist, Will is sucked into another alternate dimension, in this case, the Upside Down. As in Poltergeist, much of the ensuing story is driven by a family, with the help of others, trying to rescue a lost child. Will and Carol Ann also act as prophetic figures. They're here, Carol Ann famously warns of the demonic ghosts trying to invade her suburban home and town. Similarly, in Season 2, Chapter 1, Will tells Dr. Owen and the Mind Flayer that, it, that they are angry and intends to kill everyone except him. Beyond the thematic parallels, there's also a rather striking visual similarity in a shot toward the end of Season 2, Chapter 2, Trick or Treat Freak, when Eleven is watching TV in Chief Hopper's cabin. Shot from behind her head, is very, it, it very closely resembles the most iconic shot from Poltergeist, featured on the cover of Carol Ann staring at a staticky TV. Gremlins. The Duffers attributed the influence of an entire episode, Season 2, Chapter 3, The Pollywog, to another classic 80s film Spielberg executive produced, Gremlins. The 1984 comedy horror film about a cute, seemingly harmless creature named Gizmo, adopted by a young boy, Billy, which subsequently uh, evolves into something far more dangerous and menacing is the blueprint for Dustin and a polywog-like creature named Dart. In fact, both creatures not only grow, they multiply. Yet in both cases, the original creatures, Gizmo and Dart respectively, retain a certain loyalty to their masters, while the creatures they have spawned become, in essence, killing machines. The gremlins concept was something the Duffers thought of early in planning seasons and sessions for season two. Aside from Will being uh, possessed, they told Vulture, that storyline was always baked into our first idea, a boy and his monster, Dustin finding a creature that will grow. That was our first idea for season two. The Goonies. And then there is The Goonies. Like Poltergeist and Gremlins, Spielberg didn't officially direct The Goonies. It was directed by Richard Donner. 
but his blueprints were all over it. Not only did he come up with the story and executive produce the movie, he was also on set for much of the movie's production, acting as a kind of uncredited co-director. The movie was a big hit in 1985 and has since become a cult classic. The Goonies is among the biggest influences on Stranger Things, from the ragtag assembly of kids and older teenagers to the presence of bikes to the labyrinth network of underground tunnels they navigate to the curiosity-driven quests. While Stranger Things is definitely more grounded in the horror genre, both share similar tones, balancing adventure, fear, humor, and wonder. Even some of the more specific character casting decisions in Stranger Things was based on the Goonies. The Duffer Brothers said that White Mike Willer's uh, character was originally based on Mikey from the 1985 movie, that Sean Austin soft-spoken dreamer type. That character was tweaked a bit when Finn Wolfhart came on board, but he still retained certain qualities that resemble Mikey, including his focus, sensitivity, and determination. Incidentally, the actor that played Mikey and the Goonies, Sean Austin, joined Stranger Things in Season 2 as Bob Newby, who became one of the show's most beloved characters. While his character is obviously very different than in the Goonies, the Duffers managed to work in a clever nod to the movie when Bob is helping the boys make sense of Will's uh, interconnected drawings. Mikey explains to Bob that they are trying to find the X within Will's intricate maze. What's at the X? Bob jokes. Pirate treasure? Pirate treasure, of course, is exactly what Mikey and his pals were led to in the Goonies by the map of the infamous or infamous pirate, One-Eyed Willie. Sean loved the reference, said Matt Duffer. He was totally game for it. He loved to talk about the Goonies, thankfully. We asked him about it all day, and the kids are big fans, so they'd pester him about it all day. Other characters in Stranger Things were also cleverly inspired by the Goonies. Dustin plays a more compelling variation of Chuck, a rambunctious, funny, fun, food-loving kid who features in some of the show's best moments of comic relief. Jonathan, played by Charlie Heaton, echoes Bran, played by Josh Brolin, quiet, brooding guys who don't quite fit into the scene at school, but possess possess a certain coolness that intrigues the girls. In the Goonies, Bran manages to win the affection of pretty popular Andy, while Jonathan eventually hooks up with Nancy. Although it should be noted that Steve wears the uh, Bran-like red bandana when they descend into the tunnels on season two. Perhaps the most widely noted character parallel is between Steph and Barb, both of whom play quirky, nerdy, loyal sidekicks to the popular girl, Andy and Nancy, respectively. The similarities don't stop there. Both are put in the uncomfortable position of third will. Both have red hair, and both have a similar sense of style. See the large frame glasses and mom jeans. More broadly, Stranger Things models the dynamic in the Goonies of having intermingled storylines for both high school, the high school generation as well as for the younger group of kids, thereby appealing to both generations of viewers. A New Voice 
Every movie mentioned in this chapter was made between 1975 and 1993. It represents a remarkable explosion of influential output from Spielberg. In fact, five of the eight movies mentioned were made between 1982 and 1985, the exact period in which Stranger Things takes place. And three movies, Jaws, E.T., and Jurassic Park, at one time held the title of highest grossing film of all time. It is no wonder, then, that Stranger Things references Spielberg so much. His early movies not only transformed cinema, but they were part of the zeitgeist. According to producer Sean Levy, the references to Spielberg's movies are less deliberate homages than an instinctive subconscious influence. As he puts it, his films run through our veins. While Spielberg hasn't spoken publicly about Stranger Things, Levy says the director has reached out behind the scenes and has been so complimentary. When he and the Duffers speak to Spielberg, says Levy, we don't talk about the fact that it's got nods to him left and right, but I think that's the unspoken, acknowledged flattery inherent in the show. He frankly, like me, sees in the brothers the arrival of a new voice. That new voice certainly owes a great deal to Spielberg, but there are a number of other cinematic influences the show draws on as well. Not surprisingly, most were made in the 1980s. Those inspirations are explored in the next chapter.